Galatians 5, beginning in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. We need to pray. Father, this is your word. And you have told us that you have breathed it out, every word of it. And it's all profitable to us. Would you use this passage in our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is a very personal one. As Paul writes to the Galatians, he addresses them directly. He has been using this book of Galatians to lay down some pretty thick theology. And now he turns from really propositional statements about theological truths to, I guess you could call it, exhortational theology. He is exhorting his audience with practical application of the truths that he has been laying out for us. And he begins this section with a stinging statement, and although it was written almost 2,000 years ago, to an audience that was very culturally different from us, I hope that as you read it, you will realize its application and relevance to you sitting in the pews here. He starts off with this statement that stings, you were running well. If someone were to say that to you, it carries a lot of connotation. It suggests that you were off to a good start, You ran the first hundred meters well, but there's a whole lap to go. And now you're just losing it. You're lagging behind. You're not even in the race. You had a good start, but a good start to a race is nowhere near as good as a good end to a race. You were running well. Perhaps I could ask it this way of us. How are you doing in your Christian race? Can it only be said of you that you were running well? Is that the best that can be said of you? Is all your success in the Christian life in the past? How are you doing now? I suppose to think through that question, you have to know what it means to run a race well. What does it mean to run well? This is a common metaphor in the New Testament for the Christian life, to run a race It has very simple application to the Christian life. Running well, according to this book of Galatians, gives us some themes that we would understand of what it means to run well. If you turn back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, running well means not accepting 
another gospel other than the one that you have been given from Scripture. Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so in this case, a race well run is a race that keeps the gospel front and central and does not turn to another gospel. Chapter 2, verse 16, suggests to us that a race run well is to have your hope of being declared right by God entirely placed on the finished work of Jesus Christ and not on works that you have done. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Running well is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, not just in the past, but now, continually. To run well is to live a life of faith in the Son of God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. To continue on in the Christian life is to have your life so enveloped in Christ, so trusting in him that you basically consider Christ's life in you to be the only substantial life that you have. Galatians 3 verse 3 tells us that a race well run is to continue how it was begun. You get off to a good start and you continue in the way that you began the race. In Galatians 3.3, 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The question suggests that the Galatians were off to a good start. They started their Christian life having received the Spirit by faith, understanding that a life in the Spirit is the only kind of life that can be lived in Christ. But then they've departed and they began running the race in the flesh, namely by their own works and their own strength. And so a race well run is to continue how you began. Galatians 5, 6 tells us that to run well is to recognize and live by the rule that nothing matters on the day of judgment except faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Or chapter 5, verse 16 says that a race well run would be to continue in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, is to not grow weary of life in the Spirit. Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The race isn't over until it's done, until you've crossed the finish line. And until that day, we are 
really under compulsion to evaluate how we are running the Christian race. Did you only begin well? Or will you finish well? Elsewhere in Scripture, the idea of this Christian life that needs to be lived from start to finish is is found. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, is Jesus' explanation of the parable of the seed or the sower. And he indicates to us that not all those who begin well finish the race. Galatians 13, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. If we think of that in the context of a race that we are to run, we hear the exhortation that it is not a race that is only run for the first half lap. We must continue on. Running well is a lifelong pursuit. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Paul tells us, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Running well is a lifelong pursuit, and it involves remaining steadfast under trial. According to James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Or Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, tells us that in order to run this race, you can't be burdened down by sin or other worldly things. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Of course, running the race includes finishing well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, or rather verse 5, are Paul's departing words. He first exhorts his protege, Timothy, and tells him basically how to run the race. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So then we kind of pause at this moment and revisit that question. How are you running? How is the race going for you? Are you running well? Or were you running well? There's a big difference between those two statements. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 starts off with, you were running well. Now that's an indictment of the Galatians, not necessarily of you. As I look around this room and I see faces, I think of people that I aspire to be like that encouraged me with faithfulness. And so don't take this necessarily as an indictment of you, but take it as a moment to evaluate your own race before Christ. How are you running? And so as we break down this text, let me ask you seven questions to help you determine if you're running the gospel race well. Seven questions to help determine if you are running the gospel race well. In the case of the Galatians, the primary hindrance to them was legalism. In other cases, it's licentiousness. But in either case, the concern is really the same. Are you following the gospel? And these questions help to address that in our lives. Because whether you are off course by heading north or you're off course by heading south, you still need to go east, if east is the gospel. And so whether you're struggling with legalism, or you're struggling with just sinful entanglements in your life, either way, the solution is the same. Follow the gospel. Run the race of the gospel. And so let me ask you these seven questions to help evaluate your life. The first question, has anyone pushed you off course from the truth? Has anyone pushed you off course from the truth? Again, Galatians 5 verse 7 says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul certainly recognizes that they were off to a good start, and now he knows their condition, that they are following, following into, falling into legalism. And he asks the question, Who hindered you? And the picture is of somebody who's running a race, and then you get this guy come out of the stands who just runs full on to the person running the race and kind of barrels into them and knocks them off course or throws something down in front of their feet so they trip up. Who hindered you? And so I think the appropriate application for us is to ask the question, has anyone stepped into your life that has pushed you off course from the truth? cannot be tolerated for somebody to come in and push you off course from the gospel. So have you been knocked off course? Some of you might be thinking as we talk about this race, you're thinking, yeah, I've kind of wandering here. I'm definitely not going in the direction that I ought to have been. Not living how I know the gospel demands of me not really believing the way that I ought to believe. And so ask the question, what has brought that into your life? 
Where did it come from? Where does it stem from? Could be a person. It could be a book that you read that kind of just fed to your flesh or a show that you watched that just fed your flesh. It could be a little TBN on the side. Is it a friend? An unbeliever? Someone who seems sincere? but isn't offering you the gospel. This is not necessarily to go on a witch hunt to find that elusive person who steered you off course or that elusive moment when you decided to drift away. I know enough of my own heart to know what a liar it is, to know that I have enough in my own heart to deceive me, to lead me astray. If I were to listen to my heart, as Jeremiah 17 declares is a liar, I would hear that either I'm good enough or I'm not good enough. In either way, it's a damning point because in neither case does it point me to the Lord Jesus Christ. What has thrown you off course if you indeed are off course? In the case of the Galatians, somebody, literally a false teacher, had come in their midst and had proved to be a hindrance. And they so hindered the Galatians that it kept them from obeying the truth. If you've been paying attention to the book of Galatians, if you've been with us, to hear the word obey come from the pen of Paul, you might have warning signs go off. You think, well, this is all about grace, isn't it? Why would Paul use the word obey? It's not by works that we're saved, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So what's going on with that ugly word obey? Perhaps you can put it like this. Obedience, in a sense, has been the problem all along. It's not the presence of obedience that's been a problem. It's the lack of it. That's been the problem. The problem has not been that they have obeyed the law. The problem has been that they've disobeyed the law, but are under the illusion that they obeyed the law. And the law has no mercy. Because when you find you disobey it, you find you stand condemned. But that does not at all mean that God does not care about obedience. And part of the new covenant, which is another way to describe the gospel, is that God will put his law on our hearts and forgive our sins. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. But not only does God put his law on our hearts when he gives us new birth by the Spirit, it also says in Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so the great reality of the gospel is that it brings us the Spirit by which we can obey, but also the gospel brings us the forgiveness for when we don't obey. And in the case of the Galatians, they were finding themselves now going down a path where they're seeking to obey the law rather than following the rule of the gospel. So yes, this is the truth. 
that we must obey the gospel. The obedience of faith is the way it's put elsewhere. In other words, we can't obey the truth of the gospel and simultaneously obey the truth that we are saved by works of the law. Either we're saved by grace or by works of the law, but not by both. To obey the gospel is to believe that we're saved by grace and then to live out its ramifications in our lives. Again, for the Galatians, somebody came in and knocked them off course. So has anyone in your life, including yourself, knocked you off course from the gospel? We've got to be vigilant about this. About evaluating our own life, our own walk, about evaluating the inputs into our life, about what people tell us. We can't just imbibe any material because it's somebody who calls themselves Christian. So that's the first question. Has anyone knocked you off course? The second question is this. Are you persuaded by anyone or anything other than the God who called you? Are you persuaded by anyone or anything other than the God who called you? Verse 8, Paul says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. The persuasion that they are under is that they need to follow the works of the law in order to be saved. And Paul is saying that that persuasion that's coming from these false teachers is not from the one who called them to a gospel life. Chapter 1, verse 6 again. We read it earlier, but hear it again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. How foolish it is to taste the gospel of grace, the glorious gospel, that you have only experienced because God has called you to himself, and then to follow something that does not derive from that gracious God who called you to the gospel in the first place. God called these Galatians in the grace of Christ That means that they became recipients of Christ through faith in the cross and resurrection. And God summoned them to this life. But now they are following someone who is not of God, someone who doesn't teach the same thing. So why would they believe this person who's not of God? So again, the check on us is, who are you persuaded of and are they from God? The only reason if you call yourself a Christian and you are indeed a true Christian, a true believer, is put your faith in Christ. The only reason that you are in that condition is because God has called you to that place. God summoned you. Why then would you listen to anyone or anything that is not of that persuasion? The the calling that God made to us, however, is not just the grace in Christ, which is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also the freedom that we have in Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For you were called 
to freedom, brothers. When God calls people to himself, he calls them out of slavery and into freedom. It's a freedom from sin and into righteousness. So not only do we need to beware of anyone who would teach us that we need to follow the law in order to be saved, but we also need to beware of any teaching that would endorse any kind of sinful living in our lives. We're called to freedom, brothers. He says in 5.13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So you can tell a persuasion that's not of God if it doesn't teach the grace of God, but also if it teaches licentiousness. And without diving too deep into popular teachings out there, I would suggest that two of the most popular teachings that are in the so-called evangelical Christian church of the United States, one is teaching a greed for financial gain that is ungodly, and the other one is teaching a division among people based on race unto slavery. Neither of these are from God. And so Paul, in essence, warns the Galatians and us that this persuasion is not from him who calls you. How do you test any truth claim that has to do with your eternality or your soul saved by Christ? How do you measure any truth claim? It's by the word of God, isn't it? That's where God speaks to us. That's where we hear him speak. And so anything that comes at you, any persuasion is to be evaluated on the rubric of Scripture. Beware of anything that comes out of you, out towards you that is not from the God who called you because it will throw you off course and hinder you from running this race. The third question to ask of you to evaluate your race is, do you know that a little falsehood goes a long way. Do you know that a little falsehood goes a long way? Verse 9, a little leaven, Paul puts it this way, leavens the whole lump. As they made bread, they would take a little piece of fermented dough and incorporate it into the fresh dough, and it would leaven the whole lump of dough. If you make bread yourself, you know that's how it works. You put in a little bit of yeast, and it gets through the whole thing. You don't find one part of your bread leavened and the other part unleavened. It goes through the whole thing. So Paul puts this in here to really exhort us to ask the question, do you tolerate anyone who tickles your ears and appeals to your flesh. And if you do, stop it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the third question. The fourth question, do you have confidence in the Lord? Do you have confidence in the Lord? As you run your Christian race, do you have confidence in the Lord? Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
This is fairly shocking. If you've been reading Galatians to this point, with all the things that Paul has said to the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He even says, as we just saw in verse 7, you were running well. And now he says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Where does that come from? It might be a bit of exhortational optimism that Paul is prone to when he kind of says something to the Galatians that is big and he expects them to follow through. Like he says to the Corinthians that he says that he has confidence that they will be ready for the donation that they promised to make when the people come along to collect the, the donation. And they kind of hear that and think, well, Paul's kind of getting them ready to follow through on what he said. That may be a bit of the case here where hearing this in the Galatians' ears might encourage them towards faithfulness in Christ. But I also think that Paul is sincere. And his confidence is that they will adopt the mindset that he himself possesses. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. He says in Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's the same idea. It means thinking no other way. It means thinking in a sense like Paul does. It's to accept the gospel that Paul preached as true. And Paul's saying that these Galatians are going to come around. They are going to think the right way. They're going to end up thinking the same way. They're not going to take another view. They're going to return to the gospel and believe it. I find this a bit of an application of 1 Corinthians 13, 6 through 7. About love, it says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so you can take it as an expression of Paul's love towards the Galatians that they're going to take no other view. But notice the source of his confidence. It's not just that he feels love towards them. The source of his confidence is not in the Galatians. He's not saying, you know what, you people are just so good. You're fine people. I really like you. And I expect that you're going to come around because you're just the best people that I know. He doesn't say that. He doesn't put confidence in the Galatians. That's not the locus of his confidence. He says his confidence is in the Lord. Paul's not confident in the Galatians. He's confident in the Lord. It's not positive thinking. It's not just that Paul thinks, well, if I imagine it, it will be so. He has confidence in the God who is faithful. And he's not confident in spite of all that he has written them. That's to say, you know what, it doesn't matter all these warnings and exhortations and dangers that I've warned you about. You know, his confidence in the Lord works hand in hand with warning these people about the trajectory that they're on. He's not indifferent to their trajectory, but at the same time, he has confidence that the Lord will not let them remain in that trajectory. The source of his hopefulness is in the faithfulness of God. How could he have this kind of confidence? Well, Paul who wrote Galatians is the same Paul who wrote Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so you see there an expression of Paul's confidence, not in us, not in people, but in the God who saves from the beginning to the end, from foreknowledge until glorification. It's all of the Lord. And so his confidence is in the Lord that he would do this, that the one who called them would also justify them. And the one who justified them will also glorify them. And so he has confidence in the Lord that these Galatians will take no other view. So, I take this as a question to ask, is your confidence in the Lord? That's really the problem that the Galatians have been dealing with is they've put their confidence away from the Lord and onto themselves, onto their law-keeping. Where's your confidence? Who's your confidence in? Oh, when you look away from yourself and away from your failings and away from your law-keeping, away from your legalism, away from your self-righteousness, and you put it on the Lord, that's when your hope is sure. And that's when your life begins to straighten out, when you put all confidence in the God who saves from beginning to end. That's when your life gets straightened out, not when you fix it yourself, not when you listen to others who have the magic potion for your life, but when you listen to the gospel of God as revealed in Scripture. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You are running your race well. If you woke up this morning, not with your hope in yourself, not with your hope in this world, but with your hope in the Lord. That's where it must be. Fifth question. Do you realize that troublers will be punished? Do you realize that troublers will be punished? The end of verse 10, he says, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. This will help you to run the gospel race because if you realize that there are consequences for those who distort and pervert the gospel, you'll be less likely to listen to them. Their trajectory is on one that will find them ultimately condemned. This word for troubler or the one who troubles you is used in Acts 15.24 in a very similar context when the church at Jerusalem is meeting to discuss the scenario or question about circumcision and whether it should be applied to the Galatians, or not to the Galatians, but to Gentiles. And in Acts 15.24, the church is writing a letter to the Gentile churches and says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. The troublers were those who went with another gospel, a gospel that you are saved by works of the law. Now again, Paul refers to these people in Galatians 1 verse 7. He says, 
Not that there is another one referring to another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, what will happen to such people? These are not the kind of people that you want to befriend and accept. These are people that Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If there's anybody in your life that is preaching to you another gospel other than the one that is contained in Scripture, the biblical testimony is let him be accursed or he will bear the penalty. He will be judged. It's the kind of judgment spoken about in Romans 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Running your Christian race well includes taking a sober view to those who teach a false gospel. It's not because you have some sadistic delight in their condemnation, but because there is only one message in this world that saves from sin and wrath, and it's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And you cannot tolerate any other teaching. We must be jealous for the gospel. Question number six. To help you run your race well, do you embrace the offense of the cross? Do you embrace the offense of the cross? Verse 11 says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. As it's often been said, the cross of Christ is offensive. We might wonder at that. How can a message that is a message of love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, be offensive? The word that Paul uses is scandalon. It's a word that is used elsewhere of a trap or a stumbling block. The Galatians were hindered in their gospel run by false teachers, but the false teachers were hindered by the gospel, by the cross. The gospel is offensive. You could say it's offensive because the gospel shows that we are offensive to God. And Paul is indicating here that if he preached circumcision, which is a a message of works, a message that appeals to human flesh, that really appeals to our hearts, that we want to be measured according to our goodness. Paul says if he preached that message, then he wouldn't be persecuted. And there's no offense in the cross. But Paul still is persecuted, and so he's not preaching circumcision, and rather he's preaching the cross. The cross preaches to us not that we are righteous, but that we are guilty. Not that we are blessed, but that we are cursed. 
Not that we are law keepers, but that we are law breakers in and of ourselves. That's the message that when you hear about Christ crucified, it really preaches to us. It preaches to us that our king did not come to reward us for our righteousness, but he came to be punished for our unrighteousness. Our king did not come to declare that we have kept the law, but that we have broken it. He did not come to bestow blessings for obedience, but to be cursed for our disobedience. And so the cross becomes a message that eliminates all pride, it reveals guilt, and it brings us to our knees. Furthermore, the cross preaches a message that God's God's wisdom looks like foolishness to us, and that our wisdom looks like foolishness to God. It preaches to us that our strength is weakness before God, and that God's strength looks like weakness to us. It preaches to us that God and man need reconciling, not because God is wrong, but because we are. Not that we are wrong in some single opinion or fact or deed, but that we ourselves in our very nature, disposition, mindset, way of living, and priorities are wrong in his sight. When you look at Christ crucified and understand who he is and what he's done there, it preaches a message that strips us of all pride in ourselves because it took the Son of God being hung on a cross to atone for our sins. The cross says, there's nothing you can do. You are empty of all righteousness in yourself, all wisdom, all strength. But the glory of the cross is when you come realizing that is true, you realize that God's strength, God's wisdom has been manifest at the cross as he has overcome sin and death and proven his victory and his strength. So don't expect the cross to be a popular message with your fleshly self and with this fleshly world. If you want to run this Christian race well, you need to realize that the cross is offensive. It does not appeal to the natural man. Run your race well by putting all of your confidence in Christ and his cross. Question number seven. Do you know that self-righteousness and law-keeping is equivalent to paganism? Do you know that self-righteousness and law-keeping is equivalent to paganism? Now, this paragraph ends with a rather shocking statement in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Might be comforted that Paul, as a holy man, would use such sharp criticism, and you might think, oh, man, maybe that's the way I can start talking. That's not why this is here. It's important to get what he is saying here, though. There were religious acts in the pagan world that would involve the whole removal of the male organ to create eunuchs. It could be a part of religious worship of their false god. 
And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, not a passage that gets preached very often, says this in the law, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That law was put in there to keep the people of Israel from indulging in pagan practices that would have parents emasculating their boy children in order to allow them to grow up a eunuch who would be put in a place of prominence in some prince's court. It was a pagan practice. The custom was still present in Paul's day, and shockingly, it's still present in ours in certain areas, and even in our own culture it's done for horrendous reasons. What Paul is saying here is that those who preach a false gospel of self-righteousness manifest in circumcision are preaching a message no better than a pagan message where it calls people to just emasculate themselves completely. And so Paul says he wishes that these false teachers would just go through with the complete act in order to show what they really are. They're not men of God. They're not men of the gospel. There are men really of paganism. Running well in this Christian race allows you to see false teaching for what it is rather than for what it looks like. What it looks like was that circumcision was a reasonable way to serve and please God. What it actually is was an act when done in self-righteousness that excluded you from the presence of God because you were trusting in yourself and not in Christ. So, those are the seven questions. Are you running well? To run well is to put all of your confidence in Christ, all your confidence in the gospel, that everything provided for you is there in Christ. And if it's provided for you in Christ and received by faith, then what do you need from anything else? Follow Christ. Run the race well. Adhere to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, may it be so of us that we'd run this gospel race well, we'd endure to the end, we'd not succumb to the teachings of the world, you'd keep us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.